So I, I guess the question is, are you all trained to do the washing now? That seems to be... Oh, we're on. Good? Yeah, we're good. Well, we're taking up, our, well, continuing following Jesus on this road that he takes to Jerusalem. Has ever been in a boat? Has ever been in a boat out a little way? I once went in, I was on a yacht, and we went out beyond the heads in Sydney Harbour. And the interesting thing is, you look out at the ocean that's in front of you, and you think, if I were to jump in that water and swim due west, I'd hit Sydney. But if I swim due east, I don't bump into anything until I'm in Chile. There's literally nothing between Sydney, due west, and Chile. If you go down south a bit, you might get the top end of New Zealand, but not there. You just keep heading west. Uh, keep saying west. Keep heading east. And, uh, yeah, you end up in feel of vastness, limitless. Because once you've got to get out a little way, if you've been on a plane trip over the ocean during the daytime and it's not one of those flights where they turn all the lights off and make all the shutters go dark so you can't see out anyway, where you can actually see, is really dull. It's just ocean. And then after that, it's ocean. And then after another hour, it's ocean. And it just, as far as you can see from, it's just ocean. Who gets, I get claustrophobia. Does anybody get claustrophobia? I get claustrophobia really badly. Does anybody get agoraphobia? The fear of wide open spaces? It's interesting because there's a sense in which God's people have often suffered from a kind of ministry agoraphobia. Things that don't have good boundaries and limits to them. How far should I go? When is enough enough? What are the limits? What are the boundaries? How can I contain the sen any sense of obligation? We're going to take up Jesus' journey as a teacher in the law comes with exactly that question, where are the limits? Let's take a look at what he says. Chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know a few things. First of all, this guy is an expert in the law. That is, these were people who made it their business to know the law. Now, I don't mean, you know, this is how many kilometres over the speed limit you have to be. We're not talking about lawyers in the contemporary sense. An expert in the law in the New Testament was somebody who was an expert in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's known as the law, the Torah. 
an expert. It was, it was the heart of the of Jewish understanding of who God is and how he relates to us. The rest of the Bible is kind of filling out what happens in those first five books, the, the relationship that is established there and looking at what happens with that relationship over time. In a sense, much like the Gospels serve us in the New Testament as the heart of the message about Jesus, that then the letters to the various churches look at how that is then taken up over time. And this expert in the law comes and asks Jesus, well, he doesn't ask him a question. He's not there actually to find the answer. He's there to test if Jesus knows the answer because he's already got it. He knows what the answer to this question is. He knows everything. The question is, is Jesus going to make the cut? Here is a teacher in the, of the law talking to someone who people are seeing as a rabbi. So, this rabbi, let's see what you're worth. See if you're worth your salt. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, the idea of eternal life is not something you actually find in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. It, it actually comes a little later in the Old Testament. The main place that speaks about the idea of eternal life is in Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we read this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The, the idea was as God's people went on in their relationship with God, they plumbed the depths of what that relationship meant and learned things from God. And here, the idea that this world is all there is to it is blown out of the water. It is not. So if there's this thing called everlasting life, how do you get it? And remember, who's asking this? An expert in the law. I love this because here is an expert in the law testing Jesus on his knowledge of the law and Jesus turns around and just flips the test on him and hands him the test paper and says, you fill in the answer. It's great. Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? <laughs> now the teacher of the law is on the spot. Because here the question is, this issue that's raised in Daniel, everlasting life, you know the law. In the Torah, what is a good relationship with God based on? What, what was, how are you going to earn this everlasting life according to the law? Well, he responds. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Anybody know where that's from in the law? A Jew would say it every day. It's part of a, a, a thing that they would say daily. It was called the Shema. Because the first word of it was the word Shema, here. whole thing goes, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I had the privilege one time of visiting the old city of Jerusalem. And, and in Jerusalem, there are these little kind of 
like tiny little jars by the side of each door. And they would put in those jars these words, the Shema. They would put them in little boxes and bind them on the back of their hands. They'd put them in little boxes and bind them on their heads. This was very, very important to them. And rightly so. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus does answer the question of how do you summarize God's demands, and he puts it in exactly the same terms. Because it's saying that the whole of the rest of the, the law is about loving God. Without stint, without exception, without flagging, all of your heart. Now we use the heart as all about emotions. And we think of, you know, affairs of the heart, that's all about your emotions, isn't it? Whereas in biblical times, it was all about your will. Your emotions were your intestines. It kind of makes sense. We still talk about having a gut feeling. So with all, all your decision-making, all of your... Your, your very center of yourself, your, all of your strength, all of your ability. And it's interesting that both Jesus and this person, when they uh, explain this in, in the first century, actually add one. Both of them do. Add the mind. It's not inconsistent. We, you, you can see that it belongs here too, with every thought you have. You commit it to a God and, and, and your relationship with Him. And He says this, there's a second part, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, you heard those words where they're from, so it's no great surprise it comes from Leviticus 19. Where the, if you read it even before, verse, we started at verse 11, but you can keep going back. It, it talks about how you're to treat one another. And it summarizes that beautifully. You love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, well done. Remember, the teacher of the law was there to test Jesus, and Jesus gives the teacher of the law a mark. He says, yeah, you passed. There you go. Wonder if the teacher of the law at that point is going, How did I end up the one getting tested? No, he's right. He's actually right. And we need to realize it's not he was right for a time gone past, he is right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do these and you will live. New Testament is, agrees. How do you love God when God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ? You honour the Son and put your trust in Him. That's how you love Him. How do you respond to the God who has set His love on us? What does the New Testament tell you? You love one another. It's a command Jesus gives, isn't it? So 
when he says, do this and you will live, that's not some strange thing compared to the rest of the New Testament. That's right. That is what we're called on to do, to love. To love God with everything we've got. If you like the the vertical dimension of what it is to be in Christ, the vertical dimension of what it is to be the people of God, to set on Him all your love, with everything you've got, and to love your neighbour, to treat others as yourself. this This is the basic New Testament. Don't miss it, that fundamentally we are called to be people who love who love God with everything we've got, who love one another because we love God. And that still stands as a wonderful, a wonderful summary of what it is to belong to God. Of course, the story didn't finish there, did it? The teacher of the law was not going to leave it at that. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? I mean, that's an interesting question. Who is my neighbour? He should know the answer. Especially if he knows Leviticus enough to quote it. He knows the answer. It's actually in the very verses that he took it from. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so that you will not share their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour. What is the pairing? Who is your neighbour according to Leviticus 19? Your fellow Israelite. Nice and simple. (laughs) You're waiting for the but, aren't you? But since the close of the New Testament, there's been more thinking that Jews have done, thinking that was written up but not actually ever received um, as, as being the Word of God. So we don't find it in our Bibles. You can find it in some copies of the Bible, some particularly there's some editions of the Bible that have got some extra books in the middle, known as the Apocrypha, one of the apocryphal books dating to about the um, 175 to two, somewhere between 200 and 175 BC, was a book written by uh, a guy known as Ben Sirach. Uh, sometimes the book is known as Ecclesiasticus, usually it's just known as Sirach. And this is what it says. If you do good, know to whom you do it, and you will be thanked for your good deeds. Do good to the devout, and you'll be repaid. If not by them, certainly by the Most High. No good comes to the one who persists in evil or to one who does not give alms. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Now, that's an interesting one. Leviticus says, love your neighbour as yourself. Leviticus says, 
Be careful how you treat your neighbour, especially when they have wronged you. That's specifically dealt with in chapter 19. Sadly, Yeshua ben Eliezer ben Sirah said, no, if they're a sinner, you don't help them at all. So the question that the teacher of the law had was, if I have to love my neighbour, but I don't have to help anybody who's a sinner, and there are a lot of sinners, that gives me a nice small group of people I have to care about. So where are the boundaries? As I love God and love my neighbour, there are those who are outside of that box who are just called others, sinners, people who aren't Israelites, people I don't like. I don't have to love them. You see, what he's trying to do Well, Luke tells us what he's trying to do. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to show that in spite of all the people he ignores, in spite of all the people who he does not love, he can still tick the box on Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and say, I've loved my neighbour as myself because I've eliminated everybody I don't think's my neighbour. And I want you to agree with me and affirm that I'm a good person in spite of the people I reject. I want you to give me an A, not just for getting the right answer, but for doing what you've made me do, which is actually justify myself, because I'm feeling uncomfortable the way you flip this on me. I'm feeling under the spotlight. I want to get an A for my conduct, not just my theology. I want to prove that I am right And in response, Jesus tells a very famous story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I don't know if it's exactly the same road, but I have been down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And down is kind of the operative word. It was actually interesting. Halfway down, we met a camel. We did. We actually stopped, and I took that photo of the camel. Uh, The camel is almost always there. They kind of have a thing about having a camel there. What it's there partway down the road to do is it sits by this marker. This marker post, it's about, I don't know, three quarters of the way down down as you come down the mountain. Jerusalem's about 750 metres above sea level. That's sea level. That's what that marker's there for. For the rest of your trip, you're going beneath sea level until you get down to Jericho. Jericho is about 250 metres below sea level. To give you an idea, the continental shelf that Australia sits on, you know, that shallower part of the ocean before it drops off into the deep ocean, is 200 metres below sea level. So this is lower than the bottom of the continental shelf off the coast of Australia. We're talking pretty low. Of course, if you kept going down the valley to the Dead Sea, the shore of the Dead Sea is 400 metres below sea level. So down is right. You go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a lot of down. And as you go down, you go through land like this. An ideal place 
in a world without radios and telephones, in a world without motorbikes, in a world where people walked their journeys, an ideal place to waylay a traveller and get away with it. An ideal place to set up a lucrative business mugging the wealthy who go past by foot. And sure enough, that's what happens in Jesus' story. Jesus' story starts off in a very, very familiar space. It was known as a very dangerous road. It's known as a, the kind of road, I guess it'd be like saying, walking down the back streets of New York at three in the morning. That kind of safe road. And this man falls to the almost inevitable trouble on that road, and he is beaten. But then Jesus takes up the issues of this teacher of the law. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, hang on, this is a good guy. Priests are good guys in ancient Israel. Get that in. These are, these are people you look up to. These are not the sinners of culture. These are the great ones. These are the heroes. Now, why would he pass by on the other side of the road? There are possible reasons that may have occurred to the teacher of the law. For instance, Leviticus 21, verse 1, Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. See, if you came into a contact with a dead body, it made you ceremonially unclean. And a priest, whilst on duty, was not to do something that would make them ceremonially unclean unless the person who died was an immediate family member. That was what he was saying. So maybe this person is sitting there involved. But Jesus doesn't say that. Doesn't give us an answer for why he passes by on the other side of the road. He just says he does it anyway. It may not have had that reason at all. He just wanted nothing to do with this broken, bleeding, injured man. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus is doing something here. I have a, an all-time favourite movie. Well, there's a couple of contenders but this is definitely one of them. And in this movie, there is a character who is troubled because of what happened to his father at the hands of a six-fingered man. Anybody seen The Princess Bride? Okay. What does he say? Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. And the thing is, the whole way through, there's a very clear... It's almost, um, it's almost pantomime, isn't it? You've got the good guys and you've got the bad guys, and the bad guys are bad, and the good guys are good. And yes, yeah, some of the people who you first encounter, they kind of like... Oh, they don't seem... They're kind of likeable bad guys, and sure enough, they end up good guys. That the guys who are bad guys stay bad guys and they, that they're really bad. It's nice and clear. 
And we love a world like that, and certainly the teacher of the law liked a world like that, a world where there were good guys and bad guys, and you did nice things for the good guys, and you ignored the bad guys because you, you don't do anything for them, and that's not right. That's a kind of thinking that should and does leave the hearer, even to this point in Jesus' story, very uncomfortable. Because here is someone in need. He is injured. He just needs somebody to care for him. And two of the paragons of Jewish culture a priest and a Levite want nothing to do with him, and it is a disgrace. And isn't it a disgrace still when we see people who are supposed to be those who, who honour and love the Lord Jesus and yet who act in a way that is cold and indifferent isn't it equally a disgrace when we hear of people just looking the other way, ignoring someone's problems? It, and doesn't it... I, I don't know if you've ever talked to people who've experienced that. Usually they'll say, I used to go to church, but then... When I was uh, in ministry in New Zealand, my boss had a, a book. I, I've actually not read this book, so I've got no idea whether it's worth commending or not, but I love the title. The title of the book was When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. Because that's something a lot of people have tasted. When someone who claims to be a Christian but is on the take, somebody who claims to be a Christian but instead of helping those around him is using them, when somebody who claims to be a Christian ignores the demand of love that is upon us as Christians when somebody does not love their neighbour as themselves. Well, of course, Jesus absolutely overturns the boundaries. A Samaritan, as he... Oh, we talked a little bit last week about Samaritans. If there's somebody who's, if, if the priests and the Levites are the paragons of virtue in first century Jewish culture, we're now at the other end. These are the people, the descendants of ten of the tribes of Israel who consistently ran after other gods, who consistently rejected God's law, and then, having caused all of this grief, having been judged and condemned by God, having had their nation smashed by the Assyrians, the remainder of those people then intermarry and into faith. This is the opposite side of the good guys. A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. I want you to notice the actions this guy takes in Jesus' story. Because 
it was a brief story till now. Remember, it didn't take long to tell the first part. A guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and robbers get him and beat him and leave him for dead. In a very short time, there's a priest. He comes, he sees, he goes. There's a Levite. He comes, he sees, he goes. There's not much action. And now suddenly there's a wealth of it. He took pity. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Now, you might not think that's a wonderful thing to have poured on your wounds, but don't be so 21st century. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. It doesn't even stop there. It keeps going. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's enough money to pay for lodging at an inn for two weeks. He gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And then when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. He not only gives him gives the innkeeper two weeks of rent for the inn to look after this guy. He then says, and then keep doing it, and I'll settle any outstanding bill. What's his priority? This guy gets better. It's as simple as that. I saw him, and he's going to get better, and I will do what I can to make sure that happens. Now, who's the paragon? Now, who's the, the heroes and villains have all been turned upside down, haven't they? The uncaring priest, the uncaring Levite. And here you've got this Samaritan who is, well, people actually, you know, people love classifying things. Everything's got to be classified. And you've got to give it a description. They've done that with all of the parables of Jesus as well. This is, called, this is known as an example parable. Because, yes, that's what... The Samaritan is intended to be. But then look at what Jesus says as he finishes off. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It doesn't take long, does it? It's not a hard question given the story. It's a pretty blatantly obvious question. But look at how the teacher of the law answers it. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. How's he been referred to the whole way through the story? As a Samaritan. Starts with S and ends in Samaritan. It's not a hard word. No, he can't do it. He can do it. No way. No, he can't do it. He can't even bring himself to say the name, let alone emulate the actions. But that's what he has to do. Go and do likewise. Go and be like him. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing as he tells this story. He's not just saying, who is my neighbor? Even the Samaritans are your neighbors. He's not. That's wrong. Because have a look at how the story goes. Where does it begin? The man wanting to justify himself asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Right? What are the limits 
What does Jesus say? Who acted as a neighbour to that man? Now go and do likewise. Friends, it's really easy for us to get into this idea that this should be enough, that I can tick off my duties and then put my feet up because I've done the things that I said I'd do. To look for the limits and the boundaries. Where did this begin? What is the great commands of God? To love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. And to love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says, now go out and find somebody to be a neighbour to. Find somebody out of love for God that knows no boundary. Because if it's got a boundary, then you're not loving him with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. You're loving him with the little bit that you've set aside for God as opposed to the stuff you've set aside for other things. We love the idea of boundaries. The idea of a limitless world is scary. And I can almost hear the, 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 the but, 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 because it rises up in me as well. Does that mean that I've never, that I've just got to be a workaholic, that I've got to... Well, it's actually the same question, just put a different way, isn't it? It's still saying, you know, haven't I done enough? Instead of, where's the opportunity for me to do this again? Where's the, where's the opportunity for me to be a neighbour to somebody? Where's the opportunity for me to show what it is to be a disciple of Jesus on the path to the cross? A self-sacrificial path, a path that ends in his death in our place. A path that shows what it means to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. That's where Jesus is going and where he calls us to follow. Where he calls us to come after him by denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following. This isn't a path with limits a path where we look for the opportunities. Where can I be that? How can I be a neighbour to you? Where you is the person you meet. Not a world with boundaries and limitations. Not a world with Jews only. Or worse, Jews who do the right thing only. Or even worse, Jews who do the right thing that I like. Because that's not loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and it's certainly not loving your neighbour as yourself. It is a great deal of self-love. It's not much of anything else. Friends, We have been called to follow after a crucified Messiah. To walk in his footsteps. 
to take up our cross and follow him. He who gave his life for a world in sin and rebellion and rejection. Don't be one of those bad Christians that happen to good people. Rather, be a neighbour wherever you can. The people would see a hope in you that is different. A life that they want. A king that they want to know. That they would see your love and wonder at the love that has been bestowed on you. That it would shape you like it has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. That you have bestowed your outrageous love on us, even though we are wicked, even though we are foolish, even though we do what is wrong. You have lavished your love on us. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than at the cross where you took up our brokenness, our sinfulness, our guilt, our shame. And in your death, wash it away that we might be clean and pure and righteous. Something we do not deserve. What astounding love you have lavished on us to now call us your children. May we respond to you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. May we in wonder at your love, love those around us, not looking for the limits, but looking for opportunities to treat someone as the neighbour who we love. For those times when we have been one of those people who puts others off, who, those times when we have been so caught up in our world that we just walk on the other side of the road and ignore the need that is around us. For those times when we have failed to love you, and fail to love our neighbour. Lord, we ask your forgiveness. Forgive us afresh. Like Steph said, we just come here again and again asking for your forgiveness. Lord, thank you that you do lavish that love on us. Make us loving like you are loving. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.